You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Wonderful. Uh, I'm doing the, the fourth week on Elijah. For those that are visiting, we've been looking at this three other weeks. And just trying to look at this story. It's a true story. I'm going to tell you the story. And then basically I'm going to read it at the end. We do believe in the Bible. It is God's word. And this comes straight from his word. Before I could do that, I'm going to pray. Father, we ask that you'd speak to us this morning. We've loved it. We've come to sing your praise. We've already feel we've heard your voice so powerfully. I pray that in this story, some of us would have heard, some of us won't know. I pray that we'll hear God speak to us. Amen. So this is a true story. Want to start with that? It's a true story. It happened about 3,000 years ago. This part of the story is now back in what would be called Israel today. Some of you would have heard the history of Israel. David was their greatest king. He was the second king. It started with one that went slightly wrong, a guy called Saul. And the king who's now on the throne is a guy called Ahab. He's about seven after David. It's about 50 years has passed, and unfortunately he is not doing well. Because the country is doing so badly, God has actually sent a drought. A guy called Elijah turned up and basically prophesied from God that there's going to be no rain, no dew. And we looked at that, I think it was three, four weeks ago, and and for us, we think, great, the summer's begun. For them, they thought, oh no, we're in real trouble. We desperately need this for our crops. Elijah then uh, is fed supernaturally by God. We looked at that. He flees to a place called Zarephath. He looks after this widow, provides flour and oil that comes from God. He raises the widow's daughter. We looked at Elijah and life two weeks ago. And now we're coming to the last. Some would say the greatest part of Elijah's life. So what happens now is Elijah is, as I say, he's in a different country. He's in Zarephath, which is the next door. It's just slightly north of Israel. And God says, actually, I want you to go back to Israel and speak to the king. And uh, I find this fascinating before we even start. This is in 1 Kings 18. I'll be reading to you later. It was God's plan and God's message. I don't know if you think about that. You think about the life of Elijah. We can suddenly think, what did Elijah do? What did he accomplish? What did he achieve? Actually, he was a man who was given a message by God, and it was God's initiation. Even here, what we find is the people had not turned to God. The people were still going their own way. The king, to be honest, I mean, the king is, is just totally messed things up. His wife doesn't follow God. She follows someone called Baal. And so she's been encouraging people to do that as well. In fact, not only does his wife not serve God, his wife is killing God's prophets. And the king just sits back and lets it happen. His people are starving, but he doesn't worry about his people What we find out in the Bible is actually what he does is he's finding, where could I find some grass for my sheep? Why did he want to look after his sheep? It wasn't his sheep, it was his horses, his mules. He wasn't worried about killing sheep to eat. He was worried about raising an army to protect his name. So while he was meant to be the king looking after the land, he only cared about himself. And yet God, I would say in his mercy, thought, I've got to send a messenger to speak into this situation. I don't know how much you know about God. You know, Richard and that, they're stirring us this morning. We believe, the Bible says, we were God's enemies. 
And while we were still far from him, he sent his son to die for us. He took the initiative. It's not like we were even searching for him. I'm sure you'll hear these stories next week. I love the, the baptism. I say it'd be a great morning. People just come and we get them to share their story. So they weren't really searching for God, but God found them. And we can see that even here. I tell you, do you realize as a Christian God found you? Do you realize as a Christian God has got a message for you? Are you prepared to take it? You see, as soon as Elijah turns up in Israel, he goes and finds the king, and he says to the king, and before he almost meets the king, the king, by the way, has been wanting to kill Elijah. The king has sent messengers to try and find this evil man in the king's eyes. They say that he scouted loads of places. In fact, if you could tell him where Elijah was and didn't, he would kill you. So the king, you know, was really looking for this guy. He suddenly finds this guy. It's about three years after the drought. The king is not a happy man. It's almost, there's no pleasantries for the king. He doesn't suddenly say, oh, nice to see you, Elijah. Could we have a discussion? He just points him and says, you, you're a, you're a wizard. That's basically what he's saying. You've cast a spell over this country. It's not the kind of thing that you want if you're Elijah, is it? If you've got a message from God, what you'd really like is them to say, yeah, great. But actually, they're not saying that at all. I sometimes wonder how we find it. We believe we've got a message of good news to tell people. But they don't always want to hear. When the king meets him, he's accusing him. But Elijah says to the king, hang on, hang on, don't accuse me. You have abandoned God. You've given up on his ways. He says, actually, I'm not the trouble of this land. You are. The king basically, like I said, he'd allowed the prophets to be king. He'd allowed the the altars to fall into ruins. He's allowed his wife to, to feed 450 prophets a day at the dining room table. That's what the Bible tells us. What's that really saying? It's the place of influence the place that's got the king's ear, the place where everybody wants to hang out and hear, which was in the king's house, is filled with these false prophets. The king is proud and independent. He's living this violent, evil life. He's turned his back on God. I think that can be a huge challenge to us. It's starting sober. This story gets better. The reality is that we could live in a nation, we do live in a nation that's turning its back upon God. I read this week that the Church of England, these are just the statistics that I found between 1971 and 2007, so that was over a 36-year period, declined by 43%. They reckon between 1980 and 2005 in this nation, 2,500 churches closed. And they reckon in a 30-year period between 1990 and 2020, it's not yet happened, God could come and change this, that the church would lose 1.1 million children, i.e. the next generation that we're coming through. I think we live in a society that's very much fed up with, dare I say, the institution of God. They're fed up, oh God, I'm fed up with that, I'd like to walk away. 
And I guess if we're really honest, maybe we're in a society that's a little bit like King Ahab that then wants to point the finger and say, this has gone wrong. There's been some shocking stories in the news this week. I'm not trying to condone it at all. But it's almost like, God, what's gone wrong? I don't know about you. I mean, when I grew up as a kid watching Rolf Harris, cartoon time. You know, can you see it yet? Yeah. I mean, he'd do this picture and you just thought, wow. And then suddenly you hear this whole other side to his life. You think, what's gone wrong? How has that happened in our nation? And yet we can be turning our back upon God. Turning back and saying, actually, I'm just not interested in your word. I'm not interested in what you've got to say. So what Elijah does is he says to the king, look, you've turned your back upon God. You've abandoned God. You've abandoned his ways. What I want to do is I want to call a meeting. I'd love to gather us all up on Mount Carmel. Now, you could say to me, Pete, why on earth would the king do that? Well, partly it was a tradition in those days. You thought, let's gather the people together and let God decide. In fact, when things had gone horribly wrong, when Joshua was going into the land and, and they'd gone for this battle, which they thought they'd easily win and they didn't win it, they thought, right, let's get everyone together and God will decide who's right and who's wrong. And so there's a history almost for this story to, to do that. So what they do is the king agrees to gather all these people up on the mountain. Elijah says, I want you to bring the 450 prophets of Baal. I want you to bring some other prophets. And of course, the people hear this across the land. And so they all come and gather. This is a time for Elijah to take a stand. It's almost like him coming out publicly and saying, this is it. I am going to take a stand for God. What about you? What about me? Are we prepared in a crowd to stand out for him? Are we prepared in a crowd to actually put our hand up and think, I don't believe that. I do think something different. Are we prepared to go against the flow? Because that's what Elijah was doing. There was, I mean, the story, and we will read it in a moment, there's like hundreds on this side. And it's almost like little old Elijah on this side. We don't know if he's little, but I'd like to add that in because I think it makes the story more powerful. You know what I'm saying? It's a bit like I can feel this morning. Everybody else is sat down and I'm standing here on my own. You could feel like intimidated. Or, oh, golly, Elijah would have felt like this, but it would have been hundreds. It would have been the king. It probably would have been thousands. And him making a stand saying, actually, this is a time that I want us to gather together. Do you feel intimidated? Intimidated by your neighbor's newer car? Intimidated by your work colleague that just seems to get better sales? That seems to be getting promoted quicker and quicker? Actually, we've got to be those that think, this is what I'm, I'm called to make a stand. I loved it when Edward said, yeah, the reason we're here is we want to make a stand in this borough. We want this borough and London to be better off because the church is here. That is surely what we are committed to. So Elijah takes this opportunity and he throws down a challenge to the people. And what he basically says is this. If God is God, then follow him. If Baal is God, then follow him. What he's saying to the people is, come on, you've got to make a decision. He says you're just wavering. In fact, the, the word there is something, and it's, it's a play on words. It's actually in verse 21 and verse 26 when we get to read it. It's almost like you waver. It's almost like this little dance. It's like you, you go one way or the other. Nowadays, we might say you're just sat on the fence. I think this is a recurring challenge from God in the Bible. So my question today is, what about you? Are you sat on the fence for God? 
If you're really honest, I think I've got one foot this side and I've got one foot the other side. I'm, there's no more painful place to sit, I don't think, than sitting on a fence, is there? I mean, let's be honest, it's not a pleasant analogy, really, is it? And some of us, if we're honest, we, we feel like that. We come to church and we think, I want to go for God, but then maybe we get drunk in the week and we just think, man, alive, I'm sat either side of this fence and this feels sore. You think, actually, I want to be pure and I want to be holy, but I can't help what I keep looking at. You think, actually, I want to be radical and devoted, but I don't budget my money, so I've got nothing to give. We're sat on a fence. This is why I love it when people get baptized, because what they're saying is, I've got off the fence. It's almost like I'm no longer prepared just to sort of straddle this and, and my options. I'm all in. I mean, it's great. I've, I've warned Julie this. We believe in getting them completely wet here. You know what I'm saying? It's not just throw a little bit of water over. We're going to give her a complete soaking. And I think actually for Julie, we could do it three or four times. You know what I'm saying? Let's just celebrate. Why is this? Because actually she's all in. Getting baptized, that is what it's about. I would ask you the question, even here, have you just been brought up to go to church? Have you been brought up culturally, oh, it's the thing to do? Or are you all in? Have you said, actually, I've completely surrendered my life to him? Edward's singing about, you're worthy, you're worthy, you're worthy of everything. Or are we those that give him two hours on a Sunday? Joshua had said, when he led the Israelites into the promised land, and they'd had these battles, at the end of Joshua, in Joshua 24, he says, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And I think that's a recurring challenge, isn't it? Who are we going to serve? Jesus said, didn't he, in Matthew 6, you cannot have two masters. You cannot serve God and money. Why is that? Because you can't have two masters. You're always going to be looking. Which one shall I please? Which one shall I face? Which way shall I go? I would say, who do you serve? I know this could seem a bit strange. I'm just trying to be very honest with you. I chose the university I went to based upon the church I wanted to be a part of. Because I thought, well, I'm serving him. And where do I feel God's called me to be involved in church? So it was Sickup. Yeah, you've all heard of the great Sickup University, haven't you? <laughs> okay. But the reality was you thought, this is where I feel God's calling me to be. I know people have moved here for the church. I say, great. What they're saying is I'm all in. James writes a warning in the New Testament. He says a double-minded man is unstable in all that he does. God won't tolerate compromise. He's looking for radical people. And what happens, you see, is we've got this story, and Elijah says, why do you keep wavering? And do you know what happens? That. There was silence. It was interesting, because when Joshua said to the people, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord, all the people said, we will too. When Elijah said, hey, why are you wavering? It says in the story, the people were silent. It's almost like we're still not sure we want to come in. And so what he does is he confronts them and he says, right, we're going to make a test. There are two sides here. Each gets a bull. Each can have an altar. Each gets some wood. We're going to make a sacrifice. The only challenge is this. No fire. The idea was they had a burnt offering. It probably seems a little bit strange to us, you know, but I, I, I was trying to think. 
my analogies won't serve you at all because some people don't even like a bacon butty for breakfast. But, you know, if you want to cook your meat, you know, you think, how do you get, you need some fire. It's got to make something pleasing and aroma. In those days, to make a, an offering to God, there was fire and they would burn the meat. And it was considered like this beautiful smell that went up to God, like an aroma to God. So they were going to make the altar, they were going to put the wood on, they were going to lay the ball chopped up on top, but no fire. And the God who answers with fire is the real God. And so, basically, Elijah says, well, look, there's more of you, but that's fine, I'll let you go first. Elijah says, you can choose which bull. He could choose, so they chose which bull they wanted. There was lots of them, so they built their altar. They had their stones there, there to put their wood on there. They then chopped up the bull, they put it on top. And then what they start doing is these prophets of Baal, there's at least 450. I'm not sure people are going to be with me this morning. I was going to get you all to act this out. <laughs> you know, so you should all be up dancing around. Coming, you know, and I thought, no, I don't want to encourage Baal worship this morning. But this is what they were doing. Literally, they were going around all morning shouting out, oh, give us fire, give us fire, give us fire. Give us, I don't know why they, I put that one in, because they actually used knives to cut themselves. They were desperate. They were crying out. It's almost like it was a symbol of self-sacrifice. Blood flowed. It was their blood, because they were hoping with their blood, their God would answer with fire. That's so often the way of idolatry. We don't cut ourselves now. We just give 14 hours a day to money and the pursuit of career. You know what I'm saying? We don't actually cut ourselves, but we think, oh, God, this is what I worship, and it's killing me. Actually, it's my belly. You know what I'm saying? I've fed that I've eaten in some really nice places. I would do anything for food. Their self-sacrificing of this God did nothing. In fact, after a while, about lunchtime, we think, Elijah, who stood over this side, thought, this is not going to work. So he starts throwing in a few questions. I, I don't know, you know, you sort of think, golly, this is like red rags of a bull if it was me, apart from the fact the bull's dead, you know. He says, hey, maybe your God's asleep. I don't know if you thought about that. Which God goes to sleep in the middle of the day? I mean, it wasn't like the middle of the night. He's almost saying, hey, maybe your God just can't hack it, and he's snoozing. I grew up reading the, the Living Bible as a kid. And there Elijah says, hey, maybe your God's on the toilet. <laughs> I mean, what an embarrassment, isn't it? Here we are crying out to God, not now, I'm busy. Do not disturb kind of sign. That's the kind of picture that he's having there. Maybe your God is away doing something, i.e. he has to work hard just to try and raise enough for himself. He hasn't got enough time to serve you. So they, they get more and more, and this is when they start cutting themselves. And then it gets to the evening. And they realize that this is not going to work. And so what Elijah says is, right, you guys can stop now. I would like you to come and watch over here. So the, the eyes of the people go to Elijah. And what he decides is that he's going to rebuild this altar. Now, I would say this is something supernatural. He gets 12 stones to build an altar. That was really significant because I told you that David was a good king. David's son Solomon was a good king. After that, they had a bad king. So the 12 tribes had split into two, a northern and southern kingdom. You see, we go our own way. We want to do our own thing. But a supernatural God says, no, it's good to come together. That's surely why we love an international church, isn't it? 
we're good to come together. In heaven, we're going to be together. So the supernatural symbol here is let's gather these 12 stones. What I love about this is 12 stones because they were God-provided, not man-shaped. If you know anything about building altars in the Old Testament, they, they didn't you know, shape them all up because that then would have had a man shape on it. It was, it was a God provision. And that's what the altar was. So they built these 12 stones together. He chops up this wood. He chops up this bull. And I mean, obviously he's feeling like the crowd are right behind him or not. He says, look, look, look. Before I pray... Let's make this even harder. I mean, can you imagine it? I've just watched this team. It's not worked at all. So he picks up a spade. What on earth do you want a spade for? This is how I understand the Bible. You know, He digs a trench the whole way around the sacrifice. He then says, look, get four jars of water. There's been a drought for three years. I don't know how that happened. He says, chuck the lot on there. It's pouring down. He says, do it again. They, they do it again. He says, do it again. They do it again. Twelve buckets of water. We think it was 15 litres that had now run into this trench. It is dripping. But that means it's a God thing, doesn't it? Suddenly you think, oh, are you a God of the impossible? I, I, you, you're going to be a bit concerned now. You've heard that I went to the University of Sikup. You'll also discover that I failed my physics O-level. The fact that I did O-level, some of you are thinking he's speaking another language. That's sort of pre-GCSE. I, I got such a low score on my physics that my teacher said to me, it used to be multiple guess in those days. You could tick A, B, C or D. He said, Pete, you can improve your score, just tick all A's and you'll get a better score next time. So in my real exam, I just ticked all A's and that was it, five minutes. Science is not my top subject, I admit that. But even I know that fire and water doesn't mix. Unless there's a God. Unless God is going to do something. And so it's almost like he'd made this as hard as he possibly could, but God, but God. I don't know, we will read it in a moment. What I've also known about fire is that sparks go up. But he was believing for fire to come down. Because this was a God thing. But God. When we had a prayer meeting, we had a prayer meeting here on Wednesday night. And we felt God just uh, take us back to the passage in the Bible where Jesus was in the boat with his disciples. And, and they're rowing. And, and this sudden storm comes up. And there's water going in the boat. And the disciples think we're going to drown. And they wake up Jesus. And Jesus stands up and he speaks a word. And the wind and the wave stop. And they're amazed. Wow, this, this supernatural God that we said, that's the one that Elijah's on about. Wow, but God. So having got this wet, soaking sacrifice, he prays. You've got to remember, he spent three years in the private place with God. He now is asked to pray publicly. Oh, that challenges me. How often do I want to pray in the public before I prayed in the private? I encourage us, be a people of prayer privately because then we come out and we do amazing things in public. Seek God in the quiet place. He's done that for three years. Then he prays. Yeah? The other team, 
They prayed and chanted for a whole day. They reckon in the Hebrew it's 63 words, his prayer. They reckon it would have taken less than one minute to pray it. He basically prays, oh God, answer me. Oh God, answer me. You know, there's this amazing thing, isn't it? And then what happens, and some would say this was like the great, one of the great iconic moments in Israelite history and Elijah. God answers with fire supernatural God fire. Not only is the bull burnt up, not only is the wood burnt up, the stones are burnt up, the water's burnt up, and it says the soil is burnt up. I mean, you think, wow! (laughs) I mean, that's not like a little cigarette lighter, is it? Whoosh, there it goes. I mean, that is fire! I mean, that is just phenomenal! That is God. And then what happens? The people watching suddenly cry out, He is God. And that's the thing, isn't it? What do the signs do? They point somewhere. Why do I want to see people healed? Because it points to the living God. You know, I was like, why do I want your marriage to be great? Because it will point to the living God. Why do I want you to be a really caring neighbor? Because it points to God. The thing is, when people see this, and that was true of the Israelites, I think, why did they have these commandments? Because then the people say, wow, there's something special about this community here. Why is that? It points to God. So what happens is the fire falls, and they go, wow, he is God. It's just like the centurion, isn't it? When Jesus died on a cross, when the temple, it says the curtain was torn from top to bottom, when people were, were raised from the dead, the centurion said, wow, this really was the Son of God. There's this revelation. There's this understanding. He is God. Now, now partly you could say he is God because of the fire. Fire was often considered in those days a picture of God. We know that all of life depends upon fire, the sun. We know that fire purifies and destroys. We know it's light in darkness. We know it's mysterious and immaterial. We know it's flickering and challenging. Throughout scripture, you could say it is a a picture of God. In fact, it even says in Hebrews 12, 29, our God is a consuming fire. But what I really feel is this, this great moment, it wasn't about just the fire. It was about the people's eyes being opened. There was like a revelation. Wow, this is just incredible. Surely this to me is the great thing of the story. Is it, oh well, he he lit a sacrifice by praying? I think it was an understanding that people recognized there was a living God. This is life-changing. I said when I met with uh, some of the others who are going to share the stories, things, we don't need to make stuff up. My own story was this. I was brought up in a church-going family. My family loved God. I got taken to church week after week. But I didn't know God for myself. I went along to a meeting in a tent in those days, and, and they had a big choir, as churches used to, and they were all singing, just as I am, I come to thee. And the guy preached all about the good news of Jesus, come as you are. I said to my dad at the end, I want to come to Jesus as I am. I haven't got to do anything. That was, for, for me, it was simple. I went home, I prayed with my dad. I am sorry for what I have done wrong. 
I understood that God didn't have grandchildren. He only had children. I couldn't rely upon my parents' faith. I wanted to know God for myself. Wow, what a moment. These people here, it was wow, what a moment. We've suddenly seen God. I'd like to read the story to you before I just finish up with a couple of other points. 1 Kings 18, 16 to 40. So Obadiah, Obadiah was a faithful guy that served King Ahab, went to meet Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Jezebel was the wife of Ahab. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it in pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Jing, I'm looking for a flick. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first. Since there are so many of you, call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. They called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Oh, Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two seers of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, 
the faithful God of covenant, basically. Let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. And I have done all these things at your command. He, he was doing what God was telling him to do. He's not just making up miracles for the sake of it. Answer me, O Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. I'd like to say God has given a message to us. We're called by God to take a message. The message of this is hope. Oh God, we've got such good news to take to people. We've done our own thing. We've turned our back on God. But we've got to call people to make a decision for him. I think it's time, I believe this, almost like prophetically for us as a church, it's time to make a stand. I'm looking for the supernatural Our best is not enough, but God is able. And don't you feel coming out of this story, there's almost this thing of actually, it's been great what God has done amongst us. I love being a part of this church and looking around. But you feel like actually God is saying, come on, we are here to bring revelation to people about Jesus Christ. Now, he can do that, but he uses us as his servants. That is what we're called to do. Yeah, Jesus called his disciples, he said, I want you to be fishers of men. Yeah, literally, I want you to go out and I want you to tell the good news. If I could say, hey, what is the thing that I would love us to do as a church? I'd love us to be those that share great news with people. I've often thought that. I don't know about you, I think, if I had the cure for cancer, I couldn't sit on it. It would be wrong. You know, how many people are suffering? How many people need that kind of help? I think, oh God, that would be tragic. I think we've honestly got a cure from God. I mean, nowadays people say, oh, you, can you really say that? I believe our God is the real God. I believe that he's a God of power. I believe he's interested in people. I believe that he's called us to take that message. Are we prepared to be those that say, here I am, God, send me? And that's what Isaiah was like, wasn't he? He had this vision, he understood something, and he said, God, here I am. Send me. I know the band are going to lead us. We're just going to respond in a song before we go into breaking bread. But I just think it's a wonderful challenge to us as a church. We do want to be those that, that don't... I mean, I love the way these guys play. I love hanging around and having coffee and cakes with people. Getting here at 10 o'clock is a delight. I would encourage you to try it. You know what I'm saying? But actually, more than that, what I want is us to be a church that shares great news with people that don't know him.